0: Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today has been called the world's most traveled man. Mike spencer Bowen has spent over two decades backpacking full time around the world, visiting every country on the planet. He's evaded rebels in the Congo, hunted with pygmy tribes, and taken in the underground free party scene in Eastern Europe. He's survived thrashings on the sea in Southeast Asia, he made a string of headlines as Somalia's first tourist in decades. He's put all these stories to print in a book about his 23-plus year odyssey, and he's not done traveling yet. So what's left for the man who's been everywhere and seen everything? I had to find out. Here's his story. I guess I'll start with the obvious question, Mike. Uh, why? Why'd you do it? Why did you, why did you spend so much time going around the world?
1: I think it was because I had a very strong interest in reality. So I want to know how things really work and what things are really like. And, of course, I had to go out and find this for myself in person because you can't really, like in academic environments, I think it's mostly bogus what you'd be taught. Or even in newspapers, you know, when they have the journalists sort of parachute in and they spend a few days in Mali, let's say, and then come back out, they don't really know what's going on. So really, you got to go and take a look for yourself, and it's it's quite fascinating what's happening around the world, and really why things develop the way they do.
0: You find that your your appreciation or your understanding of things that are happening around the world has changed as uh, as you can relate to places that you've been and, and remember uh, experiences from there.
1: Yeah, and I think like it's sort of in my mind now. Like you know how you have a grid cells in your mind that sort of keep track of where you are in your environment. So it, it would show where you are within a city or within a forest. You're trying to make your way through. Well, I find now I've got the entire globe inside my grid cells. And that way, whenever I get memories or I or I um, learn something about history or even just a conversation about people, where people might be telling me how things go in this city or this region, it can sort of tag onto my globe that I've got in my grid cells. And it makes it, it's almost like that ancient Roman technique for remembering things where you, you try to envision your own house and you're putting the memories in your house. Right. Well, in a sense, it's more like the globe is my house and I've got all my memories there. How do you keep?
0: track of all those memories I mean you you pack all those ones in it's got to be hard to think of which ones are overlapping with which city was here and and which what what memory happened where well
1: I think it's because it's mapped onto a globe it helps me to keep it straight and also I'm I have a kind of memory that's more about what stories I've been in you know I remember Mm -hmm. things that have been adventures or stories and not so much things that I would just try to memorize because, you know, I'm not really involved in that, like just getting sheets of information and trying to memorize it. Instead of remembering the various stories of, you know, different jungles I've gone through or mountain ranges and, and especially people I met and conversations I had.
0: Yeah, you, you have a great example. Uh, I've, I've been reading your book and about two thirds of the way through at this point. But uh, right at the start of the book, you, you open with this segment on the palace of the winds and this analogy there. Could you break that down a little bit and explain um, sort
1: of how that applies to a lot of what you see in modern travel? Oh yeah, that was I saw the Palace of the Winds for the first time in the, I think it was the mid- 90s in Rajasthan. and it's like a, a facade of um, pink stone, quite beautifully carved, and it was meant to allow Rajasthani princesses the ability to observe what was going on in the marketplace or, or the hustle and bustle of the city, mm-hmm. but without actually being exposed to any danger. So they would uh, you know, get like a view of what real life was like, what, but um, kind of in a fake sense. I mean, it's almost like an amusement ride in a sense. So the, you know, they're getting the vision of it without the danger or the immersement. And I think that's a good analogy now for the way a lot of people do their traveling, where they just whisk around between the major airports and um, five star or four star hotels of the world. And it's these kind of people who think it's quite a small world because they keep running into the same people again and again. But I think if you if you get out of this facade, and you really experience what the world is really like, you don't tend to run into the same old people. And I think you have a lot better experience and a lot more, um, lot more real knowledge of uh, how the world really works. Where did this curiosity for you start? Or where, did you, where
0: did you first uh, have your experience of getting out of that frame of, of thinking about the world to realize that there was more to what an experience could be, what travel experience could be, than simply doing what everybody else was doing?
1: I think even from the very start, I noticed that because I, I'd learned certain things like like, for instance, in school, I was quite good at getting high marks and I was very motivated because my teachers had told me I didn't have to attend if my marks were high enough. Mm-hmm. So I made, I made sure that I had high enough marks where I only had to come in for the test. And the rest of the time I just did my own thing. And I was quite good at, for instance, uh, social studies is something that's the equivalent of history. And I think I had the highest mark in Alberta for um, the departmental exam for that. So I was quite good at it. But once I got down to Central America, which is my first off the beaten track uh, destination, mm-hmm. I noticed that everything I'd learned in this academic sense was mostly useless or you know, a good part of it was wrong as well. And when you actually talk to the people uh, down there to see what's really going on, and you look at, you know, what poverty really looks like or the different grades of poverty or how the people who are doing well in a town, you know, how, how they would think about their circumstances. It was completely different than the book learning. So I think I just uh, gained a, res- a respect for this method of learning where you actually go and immerse yourself and directly learn. And, you know, that continued all through the years. I mean, it's the past few years I'm not learning as much because people are pretty similar in a way. So after a mm-hmm. while you can kind of see the patterns. But uh, it was definitely interesting enough to keep me going for more than two decades.
0: Right. You, you kind of toss the book out the window, that first experience, and you realize that the, what, you've, what you've learned isn't going to apply anymore.
1: Yeah, like the, the academic knowledge. I mean, for instance, like here's some examples of it. Like uh, recently, one of my buddies came back from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and he was joking around about how, you know, the Americans are talking about, oh, the, um, the uh, Russians were interfering. The American election. And he was just laughing about this because he said he was with a drunken American official who was telling him that, telling him how the election would go in Afghanistan. This is before the election happened. It was six months before. And he said, oh, there'll be these two contenders. there will be this guy and this guy. It'll be really close in the end. But then the presidency will go to this guy. And General Dostrom, he'll become vice president. And they'll make it look like they're kind of contending and they're getting quite angry at each other. But then they'll have an agreement and that's how it'll work out. Uh-huh. And six months later, that's exactly how it worked out. Uh-huh. So, they, So it's like a... In a way, it's a scripted election. Now, I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been. I'm just saying that um, it's kind of hypocritical when they're, they're later complaining about foreigners interfering in their election when they go around and do the same thing, right?
0: So what were the first things that opened your eyes getting down there to seeing how much more there was out there to see and, and how much more there was to learn and experience?
1: Well, I was quite surprised by how cheap it was there, for instance. So you hear about people making incredibly low you know, wages. But down there, I was getting hotel rooms for... 10 cents a day. Oh, my And That's for a big, big hotel room where three people stay there. So, you know, more commonly was more like 50 cents or a dollar. But I began to understand how people could work for 50 cents an hour and you could still survive like that. And I I was talking to some people who were trying to do uh, charity work down there as well. And I was learning how difficult it is. it's, It's very, very hard to do charity work that's that's in any way useful. In a way, it's nice that you're trying to be nice. But that's about all that can be said of most of it, unless you're really quite clever.
0: Now, at, at this time, were you harboring any thoughts or plans of of pursuing you know a post secondary education? Were you were looking down a career path, and this was sort of a taste before that, or were you already uh, entertaining thoughts? No, of,
1: not really. I mean, no. I think my way of making money was I'm both a really good businessman and a really poor businessman at the same time. <laughs> so, so I'm able to. Uh, I can look at and see a business opportunity. So I would look at, you know, something like, for instance, um, I, I met a guy once who was carving wooden chickens, and he's really, really good at it.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And because of the uh, Asian economic crisis at the time, he was selling them for $1.50 each. And I was thinking, wow, I can sell these for $6 like immediately. Yeah. And hundreds, there thousands, you know, almost instantly. So I went and sunk all my money into getting these wooden statues of chickens and had them all, all uh, sent over the ocean. You know, going to North America, and uh, you know, all that time I would travel, and then i just zip back, I sold them in 20 days, and made uh, times four profit, uh-huh. almost and Sometimes i make up to times six profit on some of these things. So if you, if you look at where a currency is depressed because of a war zone, and uh, still do business, because most people are fleeing and refusing to do business because they're too scared. Well, if you go in there and take advantage of a business opportunity like that, you can uh, make a dog choking wad of money really, really quickly, and then just use that to continue backpacking through you know, similarly cheap countries. And that was the plan for you to to, to keep on yeah, going? Yeah, it was a good plan. So that, that shows that that's in a way where you could say I was a good businessman. But you can also say I'm a very poor businessman because I'd spend maybe 20 days working at that. And then for years, I wouldn't do anything additional. and I certainly wouldn't continue on with that company.
0: Yeah. <laughs> those sorts of things that you were doing that, are those are those still... Uh methods of earning money while traveling you think are still sustainable or or have some of those ways of of making a living as you were as you were going about have they kind of changed as as the global economy has changed and has the internet has proliferated and and some of that
1: yeah i don't think you can make money like that anymore because i think you know part of it was that um you had to carry a lot of cash Mm -hmm. otherwise you couldn't do business and most people were terrified of carrying a bag full of let's say 50 grand or 100 grand of cash Uh, naturally yeah. but but unless you had that you couldn't do business because the the banking was so poor you couldn't even use traveler's checks i mean if you tried you know i knew guys who were buying rubies in burma uh, sometimes from the government mines or sometimes from the uh conflict areas and when they would try to wire money into rangoon the people working at the bank would just skim the money
0: Uh uh-huh
1: and then where are you Uh then you're sort of like trying to get money back from them and they say oh it was never sent and stuff like that so you can see what a mess it is essentially you have to do cash business and most people are too scared to do that but now with the the internet and the increased power of the communications i think it's too easy now to do this kind of work and as a result there's no profit in it anymore
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah so wow. you have to do kind of a digital nomad thing or or something with the internet now right you know or there's other possibilities too that i haven't considered
0: how much cash were you carrying on you uh, at that time period and how did you protect yourself
1: how I protect myself is, uh, well, first of all, I I not have anything. You know, I wouldn't be wearing a watch. My clothes are just old and dirty and kind of scruffy. So is my backpack. Uh-huh. And I wouldn't be, you know, going and spending a lot of money in places or or being flashy at all. And then if I notice some sort of a robber, you know, I, I was very alert to who might be a robber or mugger. And if I notice one, of them kind of eyeing me. I would sort of like eye his wallet. And then allow my eyes to flick to a knife that I had by my side. And, like my hand would be twitching near to my knife. And he'd think, oh, he's a, he's a mugger, you know, thinking of mugging me. Right. And as a result of that, he'd, he'd uh, usually be thinking, well, there's easier marks than this. And he'd move on. Because it would never occur to him that I might be carrying like an enormous bag of money. Now, was that something that you had learned
0: through trial and error of, of having been mugged? Or, or how did you know to, to read people in that
1: way? I think that I knew this from, like I used to live in the uh, bush when I was younger. So I just go off into the bush and I live there for, you know, sometimes I, I've avoided speaking for 86 days. But sometimes I've done like five months or six months up in the bush just living off the land. I'd be catching fish and snaring animals and eating nuts and berries and stuff like that. So uh, when I came back into civilization from that, it was so interesting that there were people around and especially people trying to communicate with me that I'd be focusing so much on what information was coming out of what they said or or even especially there's more information coming off the face. Hmm. And I think I preserved a little bit of that ability. So even though I was trying to get back to normal as quickly as possible, I think I preserved a little bit of that ability to uh, tell from people's faces what they were like or what they intended. And uh, you notice quite often if there's people that mean you harm, which, you know, there's not that many people who mean you harm in the world, but travelers Mm -hmm. tend to attract them Mm -hmm. because they know you don't have any local contacts or connections. So they might be sort of gravitating toward causing trouble for you. But they put most of their effort into being like a a silver tongue devil, you know, that kind of thing, or, or even into their lie. So they're putting a lot into what they're saying. But you as a foreigner, maybe you don't even speak their language that well, or maybe not at all. You're actually attending more to how the people in town seem to respond to them, or hmm. what sort of signals are coming off their face, and even micro-expressions. And you you really get kind of like a sixth sense that way, should you trust this person or not. And I think that's useful both for business and for avoiding muggers. And what you do is you don't let on. So if you know it's quite obvious this person means you harm and they're trying to lie to you, even you, though you can barely understand what they're saying, you just pretend you're completely oblivious and therefore they're not making more advanced plans for how they're going to try to rob you or stab you or whatever they want to do. And then at the last minute, almost like you're bumbling, it so happens you bumble into some house or into some crowded street where now the plan can't move ahead because yeah. you know, they were trying to advance it in a way where they could get you alone to stab you. But, if, but you, suddenly you just – sort of lurch off in some other direction, and now it's not feasible. And you never let on that, that you knew what was going on with their plan. So you, you can kind of uh, just sort of manage things like that if, as long as you're on top of the, what information is available for the environment that's not coming to you through concepts or through words. I had an experience.
0: I was in uh, Naples, and I had a, a cell phone in my front pocket. You probably heard similar stories before. Getting onto a train, and and the people around me sort of start crowding in on either side. And as the one person is sort of distracting by almost falling over in front of me, somebody behind me reaches a hand and grabs the phone and hands it to somebody outside the train. Uh, so, so those sorts yeah. of experiences, uh, yeah, very natural for somebody to be preyed on in, in that scenario. Uh,
1: yeah, so you got to be able to understand within a hundredth of a second what's going on. I mean, yeah. There's one even just, I think it was two years ago I was in Kiev, and I was getting off the uh, subway in uh, Khrushchev station. Now normally Ukrainians use the subway quite a lot. So when it comes to a stop, when the doors just begin to open, everyone stands out of the way so that other people can come in and out. Uh And I noticed like within a hundredth of a second that it was unusual that two quite big guys just kind of stepped in the way at a time when they should have been stepping out of the way. So immediately my hand went boom to my pocket where I I was carrying like I think I had a wallet in there or something. But my hand went right there and I could just feel the skimming of like a hand pulling away that was trying to get Uh in there to steal. Uh-huh. And you know, just then I looked, and everyone was trying to keep a blank face, but you could kind of see who it might have been. But already he pulled his hands back. You could see he's quite scaled. But uh, yeah, a lot of get a lot of guys get robbed from that sort of thing. These pickpockets are quite good. Were you keeping things in your pockets in that time, or did you have more of a money belt? Uh, how
0: how are you keeping things secure?
1: Well, in the early days, so so after around the year maybe 2005 or 2006 or something, credit cards started to become more viable as right. a way to travel. Yeah, so I I switched over to credit card as soon as I can because it's quite dangerous to. Um, carrying that much money so I, I would be like to depot the money in a place if I needed it for business and just go off credit card uh-huh. but for the longest time though I had to carry all that cash I, I felt a lot safer when I had credit card instead but then of course you're taking more risks and then I would have like a wallet in my pocket and I'm not being as careful because the uh, the loss is not as extreme if you do end up losing.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier your your time in solitude uh, when you were younger uh, I want to get into that 86 days that you spent without seeing another human being without speaking without bathing what, what was that experience like?
1: I'm guessing, I mean,
0: not, not too many people uh, have had that experience.
1: Well, you go into a kind of a bush mode. So, uh, uh, you yeah, know, like after the first 10 days, you get a bit of time distortion. Mm-hmm. Then after around 24 days, you lose a habit you don't even know that you have, which is the habit of compressing your thoughts such that if you have to, you could, you know, put a word to them and construct a sentence and then speak to someone. But, you know, after around 24 days, you're starting to lose that habit. And your thoughts are actually more powerful and useful. But they are, um, well, they're more evenly uh, spread between the hemispheres of your mind and they go deeper into your consciousness. But if you had to communicate them, you couldn't. So even though they're more powerful and useful, they become more like a form of dream. And, you know, at that point, you're sort of traveling around, but living in a sort of dream time where you're in the daytime, you're following your daydreams. And in the course of following them, you're getting done what you have to get done. And in the nighttime, you're having dreams that represent reality. So you're aware of all the motions of animals around you and all that's happened because you're dreaming that as you're sleeping. So it's a a difference, like a flip side to the human consciousness. There's two ways of being a human. And uh, we tend to use only the form of consciousness that's useful for being in camp around the other people in the tribe. Mm -hmm. And we've evolved for that. But there's another one for when you're off alone hunting or in the wilderness or even banished. You know, you're you're trying to move between uh, tribes. And we have a separate consciousness for that that most people haven't experienced. So, and, and you
0: were in British Columbia on this particular trip, or, or where particularly were uh, you? The
1: one where I did 86, yeah, I was in BC. It was quite good for it, because BC doesn't get, um, there's not too many bugs, <laughs> so it can be a problem if you try to do it in Ontario, for instance. Uh,
0: and how did you fill your days? What, what were you uh, doing in that time?
1: Well, I would have, I would have a lot of uh, friends who were animals. You know, I had a pet wasp at one point. Uh-huh. He was like my Air Force. You know, he's quite a large, scary-looking wasp, but he'd be... Um, swarming around me looking if any kind of mosquito or blackfly would try to bite me he'd come down and grab the thing and he'd barber <laughs> off the head and the legs and just uh, carry away the thorax and the abdomen to back to its nest or wherever it was going with it <laughs> then it'd be right back at me knowing i was a good source of potential insects and as a result it would guard me i mean i had a a pet deer for a while too but i think she was mainly interested in my uh piss actually <laughs> so she would just follow me around and wait till i pissed on the ground and then eat the dirt <laughs> and i think it's it's because um if deer can acquire a little bit more salt they can eat certain kinds of plants that are otherwise too diminished in salt to form a part of their diet, so there's a certain advantage to a salt source such as myself. So I, you know, I had a deer following me around for a couple of years once, two summers. Oh. Then eventually she joined up with some stag that I knew from another mountain over.
0: Where did this this uh, love and appreciation for the wilderness come for you? Uh, where did you get it from?
1: I think I always had that. I mean, maybe it came from my stepdad. He was, um, you know, his uh, father was a trapper. He mm-hmm. Used to. Uh, wolves and things like that during the great depression and he sort of grew up with this idea of canoeing everywhere he was from ontario so he had this this idea of being outdoors and and really interested in the north and i think i learned a little bit of of that from him and then i just carried on you know i was anyway even when i was in calgary i was right outside of town uh, close to fish creek park which at the time was a real park and it really was you know the outskirts of the city and as soon as i could i was getting up into the rocky mountains and um, doing some climbing and uh, things like that there
0: yeah, so so you were. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were born out east and then and then made your way to to Alberta and then British Columbia later. Is that is that right? Yeah, I was
1: actually born in Ottawa, but my parents were from Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, so wow. I lived out there as well, and then in Ottawa, and then in um, Alberta also, and then in uh, BC quite a lot as well. Yeah, so I moved across the country, even in terms of before I started traveling. You know, I was pretty familiar with the southern part of Canada anyway.
0: So you, you had seen a good, a good bit of Canada already before uh, venturing outside to to Central America and, and farther and more exotic locales.
1: Yeah, yeah. And my parents as well were quite inclined to just sort of get in the car and just say, let's drive across the continent. And we just yeah. drive around, you know, looking at the sky for wherever was sunniest, just dri- driving over there next, you know, camping our way. So. There was a lot of traveling going on even before I officially started traveling so you got a bit of that travel
0: bug from then then
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah, but I, of course i've taken it much further <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, it, back to the back to the time that you spent in the wilderness, I mean coming back from that how how do you then uh, i mean you speak to this a little bit in your book, but the the adjustment process that comes with returning from isolation to being around people again, uh, being around you know, uh, civilization again, so to speak. What is that process like of integration, I suppose?
1: Well, I think there's, there's several problems. I mean, some of them are minor. So when you're coming down off, let's say six months of bush time, you've got to sort of reintegrate into normal Canadian existence or North American existence. Mm-hmm. And your first problem is you're, expressions get really exaggerated. So unless you're an Italian, you have to tone them down quite a lot. <laughs> and uh, the next problem is you tend to knock over things if you're not careful because you're usually sort of just bashing and sort of bouncing off trees while you're going down a hill or through a forest. And you've got to tone that down as well or you'll be knocking everything over in the shops.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But those are relatively minor compared to the... Uh, sketchiness you feel from your mind being overly activated for paying extremely close attention to uh, the information that are on other people's faces or the information you can gain by attending closely to exactly how they structure what they say. And the equivalent is if someone gave you a transcript of what was said and you could study it the way someone who's an English major might study a Russian novel for months. Hmm. But you get this insight in real time. So in a a very real way, it's like you could uh, read minds. But it's in kind of in that literary sense. You get these d- deep insight into why people do what they do, and it's it's quite exhausting. So you can't maintain that, and it takes about if you've been up six months, it takes about six months to get back to normal. But uh, for me, I always try to keep running some aspects of it that I'd be using to try to determine the moral quality of the people I'm around. Yeah. So it's it's a way of sort of honing my intuition because it, it's so important with your intuition when you're traveling, because it. Even though there's not many people who are really nasty around the world, they do tend to cluster around the travelers because mm-hmm. they know you're not locally connected. and You can't really hit back at them if they do something uh, nasty to you. So they, they do cluster around you as a potential victim. And you've got to be able to just determine who's a good person and who's not very quickly through your intuition. Right. And make sure you never trust someone who means you harm.
0: I, I imagine part of that is just the natural uh, need to filter things out as a as being uh, in, a, in a society with a lot of stimuli you have to sort of tone some of that down in order to just function without taking every, every bit of uh, information in
1: yeah it would be too exhausting and also people are kind of like a lot of people's personalities are more like crowbars I mean they're trying to find some sort of advantage with someone else and mm. sort of really in there and, and gain advantage and especially city people are like this they're not really aware of it and I'm aware that if I'm in the city I become like that too so the, the way like people really give each other short shrift and they, they're really looking for some sort of um, dominance or advantage and they're, they're in there clawing away at each other. It's really quite nasty to observe when, right. they, when you're first down from the, the forest. But in, in certain societies, it's not as much like that. Like if you're in a Nepalese village, they're really treating each other as a human being. But I think it's because they're they're around people they've known their whole life and they're really, you know, everyone's playing the long game on everything. Huh. Whereas in the city, it's not so much like that.
0: It's harder to BS somebody if, if you're going to see them tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Uh, you're not just gonna have a one-time interaction with somebody and, and off and on your way.
1: Yeah, people treat strangers much different than they, they treat uh, family. And in mm-hmm. some of these, like an example would be some of these Nepalese villages that are quite isolated. There might be 20 or 30 people there. And that be, they would be like 95% of the people you'd ever meet in your life. And you know them and their, you know, their parents and their grandparents, you know, you know everyone. And as a result, you can't act in the, the same manner that someone in a city can. They, uh, you know, they know that the person they're about to see now, they'll never see again.
0: Yeah. So how long had you been in, C- in Central America when that trip was?
1: That trip was only a few months. Like, I think it was only a three or four month or, which it uh-huh. would be a very short trip for what I ended up doing later. I mean, it used to be after that, I, I sort of scaled up to doing... Anywhere between eight months and, and about a, maybe a year and three quarters. Yeah. Then I'd try to like pop back to Canada and say hi to some people for a few, <laughs> months, or not for a few months, for a few weeks actually. But it was, um, it was actually more traveling when I tried to stop traveling because when I got back to Canada, everyone wanted to visit me. Mm-hmm. And I know people all the way across Canada, so it'd be like crazy amount of traveling for when I tried to stop. And after a few weeks of that, I'd, I'd kind of get tired of that hectic lifestyle and go back to my slightly less hectic lifestyle of constant travel. Uh, it's It's funny to hear
0: you know the words only three or four months uh, given the the way that you know Western culture and, and careers have structured around you know you get two weeks vacation or three weeks vacation. Uh, a lot of people be, be climbing. yeah, I know like yeah. if I'm
1: on the last two months of, of a trip, I almost feel like like when I, when I meet someone and they've got a two-week trip and they're kind of on the last uh, two days of it, mm-hmm. the way they feel is when I, when, the same way I feel when I'm on the last two months of a property long trip.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's probably the most fascinating thing to me is you can meet somebody in one in one instant. You meet somebody who's on a two week trip and then the next instant you're meeting somebody who's on a two year trip. And just the perspectives of, of time so different between what people are experiencing and, and how they're getting to enjoy their their surroundings.
1: Yeah. Well, I can hardly imagine a two week trip or even a four week <laughs> trip. I mean, it, t- it takes you a couple of months just to get into proper mode, you know. Right. Just to get going. <laughs> so, you know, a few weeks you're, you're still in, uh, you know, still in the mindset of wherever you came from.
0: So the flames were fanned for you after that first time to Central America. Where did you want to go next, and, and where did you go next?
1: Well, I ended up in Asia next, and uh, I think I started out in Indonesia, which at the time was was quite wild. Because actually, Asia used to be as wild as what Africa is now. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I had a lot of fun there. There's like, like uh, things were quite rowdy. Like, for instance, here, like, for example, uh, Cambodia. Uh-huh. Uh, at first, you couldn't get into Cambodia there was a guy with a rocket propelled grenade launcher who was robbing the trains oh my so gosh. no one could get in but finally um, among the backpacker community there was some the word was out oh you could you could get into cambodia and one of my friends from vancouver he zipped in and did all of cambodia before i could arrive and even start uh-huh. so i saw him come out and i'm like well how was your cambodia and he said oh pretty rowdy So he was telling me how he he got um, robbed with a a guy with a 50 caliber machine gun, robbed the boat he was on. When he was in Phnom Penh, guys were battling with rocket propelled grenades in the street. And then when he got to see in Uckville, he was trying to go to a particular hotel. But he had like a cheating taxi driver who wanted to get a commission from another hotel. Mm -hmm. And kept bringing him to the hotels that were further from the beach that had probably, well, almost certainly had decided to pay a bribe to taxi guys to get them to bring customers. And so as a result, he did not get to go to the hotel he wanted to go into. But the next morning, he packed up, and he was going to move into this one that he had intended to be in, and he noticed it was surrounded by police and army, because the uh, guys had come in with AKs and blasted dead every man, woman, and child on every floor of the hotel to uh, kill them off and take their passports and their cash. Jeez. He was like, whoa, and good thing you didn't deliver there. So that's just a, a sign of how rowdy Cambodia was. But then by the time I got in, it already started to get a little bit less rowdy, so there were guys shooting in the street in um, Phnom Penh, and in World, there were some uh, kids with knives, Who were they try to sell you mangoes, and if you didn't buy one, they'd say, buy a mango or I stab you. But, you know, they're just kids, so you could just grab the knife off them and toss it down the sand. Uh-huh. But, you know, I didn't see any hotel massacres or anything. That was just a few months after he came come out of it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it shows how quickly things can be civilized as
0: well. But you were you were there during the time when there was still, I mean, Khmer Rouge activity, was there not?
1: Yeah, there was, especially up north. So I ended up having to pay 20 bucks to the Khmer Rouge to get through a particular roadblock. But they've been pretty much deactivated now from what I what I can uh, determine.
0: Yeah. Uh, what were your main takeaways when you were when you were in that part of the world, when you were over in, in Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, the things that, that come to mind uh, as you think back on, on those
1: countries? Well, I was surprised by how uh, – well, for the economies, of course. It was interesting to learn about the various forms of corruption they had going on. Uh-huh. So when people talk about African corruption now, it's a lot of it there. I mean, Asia used to be just as corrupt. And to some extent, they still are. And so I found that kind of interesting to learn how how that works. And in a way, it's a little bit like feudalism. So it's like they're putting their their family before the rule of law. Hmm. And you know that's the beginning of it. And in a, in a way, that's sort of like a, a moral stance that was quite common during feudal times. So it's not like it's a really outrageous thing, but you know especially in the early days I was trying to do business there. so you know I had that in mind to sort of examine how things went from a business point of view. And yet you had to be very careful <laughs> doing business. But now it's it's so developed that I don't go as much to Asia anymore. I mean, I go, you know, I was recently in Pakistan and Bangladesh and a few other areas. But I think almost Thailand's a bit too built up for me in a few of the other areas. Mm. But it, it was kind of, it was exciting back then. It was like the Wild West. But now I think for the same thrill, you should go to Africa.
0: And for that reason being of just a little bit less prepackaged sorts of experiences or, or, or for, for what reason?
1: Well, I think, so for Africa, if you're not in the main tourist areas, Mm-hmm. there's nothing packaged at all you really have to make your way everywhere and you, you get a problem like like for instance if you're doing the congo you got to find a way to deal with the police because they're going to be constantly uh, trying to shake you down and uh, basically steal everything you own i mean they're really quite bad they'll come up and be threatening you they're going to shoot you unless you hand over the money and uh they're almost like the center of corruption for that part of africa is the congo and it sort of spreads out from there but you've got to make some sort of strategy and for each person it's got to be different you know what what kind of um I guess, ruse are you going to use to get past them? Hmm. I mean, I, I typically tended to favor pretending I was a United Nations inspector. Uh-huh. I managed to pull that off pretty well. But I, I, I met a, a guy who later became a friend of mine, and he was using a more expensive uh, route where he just paid $3,000 to the chief of the secret police to get a document <laughs> so he was to proceed. Now, that, now, that's another way to do it. But he had a lot of valuable cameras with him, whereas I didn't.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So it can be expensive to try to travel with cameras in some of these areas. I mean, he had guys uh, several times he had guys threatening to kill him because they can see the value of the camera, right?
0: Right, yeah.
1: You I know, mean, I, had, I had a buddy killed for his smartphone uh, just last year. Oh man, yeah, and he's killed by his yoga teacher, of all things. Uh huh, yeah. You know, the weird thing is he kind of knew that the yoga teacher was going to kill him, so he actually posted on Facebook, Oh, I think my yoga teacher is going to kill me. Huh. And uh, and it was kind of like that's his intuition. You could tell his intuition was telling him don't go to this cave, isolated cave in the mountain with this particular yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. But uh, it turned out he did anyway because he felt a little bit of pressure because I guess he did a lot of stuff on Instagram. You know, he don't, he told everyone he was going to go to this cave. He's going to study yoga with this guy. And um, sure enough, he got killed for his phone. Oh, my gosh. But it, but it just shows like when you're trying to like be an Instagram traveler, you have a little bit of pressure sometimes to go against what your intuition is trying to tell you to do.
0: Right, right for that photograph.
1: Yeah, because you're trying to get the perfect photograph, and you know uh-huh. that everyone's following what you do, and and they would maybe they would react negatively if you if everyone was expecting you to go to a cave to study yoga, and then you decided you're just not. Right. So it's it's just that tiny little bit of a push, but then again, your intuition is just a tiny little thing too. So that tiny bit of a push might be enough to um, remove the part of intuition that's trying to keep you safe.
0: Yeah. You didn't have a camera with you for at least for the most part, or not at all. Uh, how deliberate uh, was that? Not at all. For you? No, I, yeah. I
1: have a camera now, but I've had it for like a month. I had to buy a smartphone It's yeah. impossible to exist in Canada without a smartphone. <laughs> We're like the, the smartphone people now. It's like it's like being a Mongolian without a horse, you know. Uh, and you, yet we have
0: know. terrible phone plans, but but uh, but nonetheless, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you fr- well people expect you to have one. It's almost rude if you don't.
0: Right. Because yeah. you know
1: everyone expects you to be like, especially if you're doing a lot of media, which I was doing. You know, they expect you to be contactable at any moment. You kind of need to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had to get one but before that I'd have no camera and that saved me so many times when they get arrested as a suspected spy I mean the fact that I have no camera right really speaks to my uh, the truth of me saying I'm, I'm just a traveler uh,
0: how many times did you did you have to talk your way out of scenarios with police or with border guards to explain yourself again and again uh, that you're well, only traveling like
1: through? maybe ten times that were serious
0: uh-huh. and maybe
1: five of them in the third world and five of them in the advanced world because I used to get mistaken for two things like quite often, I prefer this one. People would mistake me for a National Geographic guy sometimes.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I much prefer this to one to the other one, which is being mistaken for a terrorist. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, the accusation of the uh, National Geographic <laughs> photographer is an easier one <laughs> to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, but I've, I've been thrown in jail a few times as a suspected terrorist. But I always manage to convince people that I'm not at all a terrorist. And eventually they would realize that and they like, okay, off you go.
0: How many passports did you go through? Because I know if, if at least a few times you you would renew a passport just to get some of those uh, troubling stamps out of there, the ones that you know they are going to get you questioned.
1: Yeah, and even even if I didn't, like I I'd blow through a 48-pager in about a year and a half. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so um, and sometimes you just find like, let's say you're only two-thirds of the way through a 48-pager. You might still find you've accumulated too many dodgy countries. And then you get the opposite problem, like you get uh, being held up at Heathrow, for instance, Mm -hmm. or uh, coming into canada or coming into the states you can get a lot of trouble i had nine hours once at heathrow i had a couple sevens a few four or fives They have something on my record now so and um, even though i'm kind of aged out of what the profile is so i don't get as much trouble Uh when i was still within the profile of the younger guy traveling alone they used to be looking like they're going to cause a lot of trouble for me but then they call something up on the screen they say oh okay mr bound actually you can go so clearly they made a note eventually on their um on their file. Uh, How
0: how familiar did you become with some of those uh, TSA agents or or airport security folks
1: uh, if you were going? Yeah, I knew knew the police quite well. Uh, Usually you get a different guy who was doing the actual uh, interviewing, Uh but I knew the police quite well. You know, I was joking at one point if I knew them any better, I'd have to send them Christmas cards. (laughs) Yeah, but I'd done the the whole sneaking into uh, Sometimes I hang out in refugee camps quite a lot because often the refugees and me are trying to do the same thing, like get through some dodgy border. Yeah. So I spent like months hanging out in refugee camps across Africa or Asia. And even once I managed to get through the security at uh, Calais, you know, that uh, the place people would cross over to England. So I managed to get through holes in their security court and I ended up behind where they were checking to make sure no refugees got in. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to lose our jobs. Please tell me you're not going to claim status. And I say, no, I'm just a Canadian. Right. Just trying to get on the ferry. Yeah, just trying to get on the ferry because they'd close it off for foot traffic. Because, they you know, the whole fortress type area is trying to prevent anyone on foot from um, getting in. Whereas I was someone who was only on foot at that time.
0: Right. How how were you approaching the local language in each of the countries that you're going through? How much how much were you picking up of, of different languages? Uh, or how much were you getting by with English?
1: I would, uh, I just learned a few hundred words of each language that's a primary one. And uh-huh. I wouldn't bother too much with some of the secondary ones. Uh-huh. So, like, for instance, you know, recently I've been spending more time in Eastern Europe, and I've I've probably got like four, three or four hundred words of Russian, and I can read Cyrillic. So I'm coming along a little bit like that. Uh-huh. But I, I never, I think you really got to stop and really concentrate to learn a language. And if you're moving constantly, you find out that they, even the primary language is not the one that's used in most areas. It's usually some kind of tribal language. Uh, yeah. So languages would change every couple of weeks. So it wasn't that worthwhile to spend a lot of effort on some of these secondary languages. I mean, if I, if I was gonna stop and live for many years in a place, I'd probably have a, a slightly different attitude. Right, yeah. It can also be dangerous to be learning a language, because if you're trying to travel, and you're really kind of on the edge of your seat in terms of what you can actually accomplish with travel, then you need to um, be attending to people's faces and the other nonverbal information. But if you're instead trying to attend to trying, to, let's say you're trying to teach yourself perfect Spanish, right, then you're really paying attention to how you're speaking, what they're speaking. And then you've really moved over into that zone where you can be quite deceived and uh, get yourself in a dangerous situation because it's the equivalent of not being attentive because what you're doing is you're attending instead to learning a language instead of attending to your own safety.
0: Right, right. You're focusing on your language. Yeah. So
1: where did you go next
0: after you'd been to to that part of Asia? Uh, what What part of the world beckoned to you?
1: Well, I ended up in, I was in Europe for quite a while after that. And then I'd done the, I'd done the Middle East. Okay, like I, I went through um, Iraq during the war, uh, late 2003, early 2004, which was quite fun. I was in Iran with a, a woman who was trying to document and photograph the underground party scene. Uh-huh. So I went along with her to pretend to be her husband so she could move more freely. Because otherwise, very difficult for, for a woman to move around Iran. Uh-huh. And... Uh, then I did like a, a whole bunch of Europe for a while. I had some friends who were involved in the free party scene out there, so I'd, I'd go to a few of those. It was quite interesting. And then I started concentrating more on parts of Africa and um, even did South America for a while. Then it, then back to Africa. I think it took six or seven really long trips to do uh, Africa. Finally, toward the end, you know, I did some South Pacific and tried to finish off some of the things that I hadn't seen yet. Yeah, because it, it became quite interesting to see countries that I'd never been to before. There's a,
0: a great conversation starter, I find, where, where you ask, uh, you know, if you had a flight to anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? And I and I would say my answer to that is Antarctica, because uh, if you're going to get a flight paid for, it's, it's probably that one that you want to get get covered uh, to go so far.
1: Yeah. Have you done Antarctica yet?
0: No, no. But you, you have. I, I'd be curious to hear what your experience was like going to that part
1: of the world. Well, it's, it's actually really expensive. So I think it cost me 26 grand. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's pretty much minimizing things. It's very hard to get into a lot of these. Like I want to go to some of the scientific installations where they're studying penguins and things. And it's uh, it's really hard and really expensive. I'm not sure that a, a, just a flight to Antarctica would help you that much because you'd end up in just place. And uh, then right. you'd have to organize how to get to other places as well. Uh-huh. And to even survive there is really hard. You, you did so, it by
0: boat, right? You, you went uh... yeah.
1: Yeah, I did it by boat. I joined one. Of these, it was like a converted old, old Russian Arctic research vessel. Uh-huh. But they took it down there with the same Russian captain. It had sort of a shallow draft, but the, the ability to come in quite close to ice blows and things because it was meant for researching animals in the Arctic and geology and whatnot. So it was quite a useful boat for doing the Antarctic. Yeah, but that's That's probably my most expensive – well, certainly my most expensive trip. What would, what would be on the the total opposite end of things of, of the cheapest place you went? Well, the cheapest place is now uh, – Ukraine's pretty cheap. Uh, uh-huh. Ethiopia is pretty cheap so even nowadays it's very hard to get a, a property cheap hotel but in Ethiopia you can get the the 350 hotel uh-huh. and in Bolivia you can get the same but Venezuela is getting cheaper but it's maybe a little bit too too violent at the moment it might not be quite doable like one of my buddies doing um, a motorbike trip across all of uh, South America for um, I think it's one of the travel channels in the UK. He's done it before for Africa. He did like Africa Bike Adventure uh-huh. where he almost got uh, machine gunned to death by some Samburu tribe. But he managed to survive that. And now he's doing like the somewhat easier South America. But he's finding he couldn't get through the Venezuelan border. So he's had to make kind of a detour. I think it's like a, a couple of years he's spending motorcycling around. Oh, wow. But uh, it shows that Venezuela is getting tougher because he's he's uh, quite a good traveler. So if he's uh-huh. having trouble in Venezuela, then I think most backpackers would. But certainly it would be cheap.
0: What were the things that you think saved you on your travels of things that kept you going, things that allowed you to, to keep on going, the things that you know kept you from getting either sick or taken advantage of or becoming dejected with the whole experience?
1: Well, okay, well, in terms of getting sick, I actually have very good health. So I've never seen a doctor for any reason, which was you know a pretty good claim. I, I used to have the claim that I'd never <laughs> taken rare, yeah. a medical pill for any reason either but I kind of spoiled that when I had a toothache in Bolivia back in, I think it was 2009 or 2010. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, I've still managed to avoid doctors and I've only had two malaria, so twice I had the the potentially lethal falciparum malaria, but both times I was able to catch it really early and I just took a Co-Ar- Coartem pill or a course of, course of Coartem and I managed to sort it out. And I think I had Zika once, so it's a probable Zika, because just at the time Zika was sweeping across the Pacific, uh-huh. when I was in uh, Micronesia, I felt quite ill, and ill enough that I decided to go to the hospital. And because it was New Year's, the hospital was closed, so I didn't actually manage to get into a hospital, which would have spoiled my never been to a, a doctor thing. Uh-huh. But uh, then I found, I thought, okay, I'm just going to have to wait till the next morning. But by then the uh, fever had subsided, and I, so I decided, okay, I guess it's gone. And sure enough, that's when Zika was crossing through the country, so I imagine it was probably a Zika. And I get a, a Jardia every, maybe about every year and a half in Africa. And maybe every two years elsewhere. It's hard to avoid Giardia sometimes. It's in a lot of the water and the vegetables and stuff. What does that do to you? uh, That's that one. It's it's beaver fever, they call it sometimes in Canada. It's like a single-celled organism that tries to attack your gut. So it's kind of nasty. But eventually you learn the signs of it. If you hit it right away with um, Flagyl, and I heard there's even a better drug you can uh, get rid of it quite quickly. But if you sort of try to tough it out, sometimes you make a mistake because it can really settle into your gut. And it might take two or three courses to try to get rid of it. So it might be like a four-month effort to get rid of it. So it's it's better to try to avoid it as much as possible. But other than that, I mean, that's hardly anything for, you know, in terms of health effects. I mean, I, I'm really uh, blessed that way.
0: Right. Now, as far as the other things, I mean, what, what kept things, I guess, what kept things fresh for you? What sort of frame of mind uh, allowed you to, to not become dejected by, by things not going your way if, if, you, know, if you had a certain expectations for an experience uh, or just to, to not become too fatigued with what you were seeing and, and to constantly uh, have the energy to keep on going?
1: Well, I think it's all the interesting people that I've been meeting. So, you know, at first, I was mostly interested in the landscapes and in the ecosystems. But eventually, I was learning that this travel is such an excellent filter whereby the large number of kind of boring people are sort of filtered out and you you end up being around a larger number of adventurers or people that are really have quite fascinating views of the of the world. Uh-huh. So you just keep meeting these people who are like potentially really good friends of yours. And so it's just so much fun. I mean, I was reminded of like um you know how it would be when you're when you're like eighteen years old or something, you're meeting all these people and having fun all the time. Well travel's kinda like that as well. So you're, you're meeting people and sort of then deciding on adventures and going and doing them and dealing with all these difficulties. So it's like these little mini-adventures or even actual adventures that you're able to do with people. And it's very satisfying for a human because I think it's it's naturally what we're supposed to be dealing with. I mean, we're people who are evolved to be able to handle, you know, giant ground sloth and mammoths and, you know, cave lions and things like that. Like early on, it was quite an adventure to survive as a human. Mm-hmm. And that was 95% of our evolutionary history. So I think that we're, we kind of crave that as a lifestyle even now, or, or you know, at least I do.
0: <laughs> Who are the people that you think on your travels, I mean, you, you've, had, you've had decades of, of seeing the world, but, but often it is the people uh, half the time that make those, those experiences memorable. Uh, the ones that stick out to you as, as uh, having the most interesting stories that you've heard.
1: Okay, well, I gotta, so here I'll tell someone else's story. Uh, yeah. So this is a, um, a buddy of mine. Uh, I met him in the Congo. We're, we went together to uh, live with the Bambooty Pygmy tribe. But um, I was telling him some stories about Mongolia. And just an example of, of the sort of people you meet. Well, here's his story from Mongolia. He wanted to go in there and get some photos of the uh, bear of the Gobi Desert. Mm-hmm. And I've since learned a little bit about these bears, because I, um, I was speaking at the Banff Film Festival, and the other speaker who was, went on just before me was talking about the Gobi bears. So he was talking about how they survive on wingless grasshoppers and wild rhubarb. And I was kind of interested to know that. You know, I learned that just a, a week or two ago, because I always wondered what they ate, because there's almost nothing in the desert. But at this time, this guy named Peter, who's a Slovak, he wanted to go out there and uh, get some photos of them, and he thought they'd be worth money. So he flew into Mongolia, and he went up to the edge of the desert, found some Mongolians who had some Bactrian camels. And he tried to get them to bring some camels along and uh, take care of the baggage train. And Uh as a result, you know, go out into the desert, find these bears, get some photos. But they told him, oh, you're crazy. You won't find any bear. You'll probably die out there. We're not coming. So he ended up having to buy a couple camels off them and take them into the desert. Now, we didn't know anything about camels. So uh, he found that they (laughs) were annoying in three ways. One of them is they would attract biting insects. Another one is they would get really stubborn and sometimes they wouldn't move on. So, uh, you know, on, on one occasion, he went to stab one in the hump with a pen knife to uh, get it to move. And also, they'd spit on him and the spit was kind of caustic, but he didn't want to waste too much of his water trying to wash it off. So, he's suffering a little bit of burning spit.
0: Huh.
1: But, he, but he managed to get around through the desert and he was finding caves, thinking the bears must be in the caves. So, he's jumping in with his camera ready to take a photo. And he's finally like, oh, empty, empty, empty. But finally, he jumped into one cave and there was uh, no bears. But there were three niches cut into the stone walls of the cave. And there were three mummified corpses, one in each niche, that were wearing what seemed to him to be archaic clothing. Oh, my gosh. And he's gosh. like, ooh, mummies. So then he's like, oh, I wonder if mummies are worth money. So he grabbed one of them and tied it onto the camel and he kept <laughs> going. And eventually he did find the bear and he got some photos of it. But now he would discover later, actually, no one... Cares to Like people are vaguely interested in the bear of the Gobi Desert, but they're not going to pay money for the photos necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a losing business proposition for his whole photography expedition. But anyway, he didn't know, didn't know that at the time. But um, he goes back to the uh, Mongolians and he thinks he'll make some of his money back by reselling them the camels. But they're like, oh, no, these are now used camels. Ooh, very used. The price has to be low, right? So he loses a lot of money on the camels. Uh-huh. But but then he's thinking, okay, but I'll make it back with my photos and um, with my mummy. So he goes to Ulaanbaatar, and he's trying to shop around for the photos, and he finds out that actually they're not worth a lot of money. But he thinks, okay, what about the mummy? So he goes out to the university there, and he says, oh, do you want to look at this mummy I found? And they're like, go away. We're a metallurgical university. We're not interested in mummies. (laughs) So uh, no success there either. But uh, he doesn't give up. So he makes a box. He puts the mummy in it. He puts all the stamps. And at the time, he was living out in Vancouver. But then at the last minute, he's thinking, "Oh, should I really send this box? It might be kind of dodgy to do (laughs) so." But but here he has an idea, and because he's a Slovak, he's a little bit sleazy. But uh, he was with um, he managed to hook up with this Italian girl in the hostel. So he actually didn't tell her what was in the box, but he said, "After I'm gone, can you send this box?" I just forgot to send it. Is all he tells her, right? Uh So okay, fair enough. He's back in Vancouver, and he's in um, his mother was living there at the time, and he's in her backyard having a barbecue. And suddenly three kinds of police come in. So it's like the RCMP, but also the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which are American, and the FBI. Uh-huh. And they burst in and they arrest him for murder. And they're putting him in handcuffs. And his mother's like, what did you do? What did you do? And he <laughs> said, I did nothing. Like he'd forgotten all about the mummy, right? Yeah. So now they fling him in jail and they're interrogating him. And uh, he tells the story to the police, same as I just told you. And they're like, you, yeah, a likely story, right? Don't believe him. But... Um, they say, OK, well, we'll uh, test the mummy and or as you say, it's a mummy, you know, from the, here's what happened from the police point of view it's why they were so suspicious. So the Italian girl didn't know that there was anything untoward in the box. So she put a card on it saying, oh, I love you so much. Kissy, kissy, kissy. <laughs> with all these like red hearts she would drawn on it. Yeah. And then it came through Seattle on its way to Vancouver and they did a routine x-ray over there and they found a dead person inside. Uh-huh. So what they have is a dead body with a card on it saying, I love you so much. Kissy, kissy, kissy. Addressed to this guy in Vancouver. <laughs> So, they come in and arrest him for murder, right? So, so anyway, they, they keep him in this cell. They send this thing off to a university to be tested. And he's sweating a little bit now because <laughs> he doesn't really know, like, maybe the desert just dried this guy out. Maybe he's only dead a month or something. And it really is, you know, uh, very suspicious. But it, luckily for him, it came back that the thing was at least 400 years old. So they uh-huh. said, okay, you can go. And then he's quite cheeky. So he says, oh, can I have my mummy back? And they're saying, you're lucky we didn't arrest you for, you know, various <laughs> laws have been violated for sending a, a corpse through the mail, right? Oh, man. But yeah, but he's quite rowdy. So he's always doing stuff like that. So, see, it's interesting when you meet people that have stories like this who actually go out and, um, I mean, maybe that's not, um, maybe it's a little bit too dodgy what he gets up to, but he's a fun <laughs> guy. Yeah, uh, I got dozens of friends like that.
0: How, how many times during your travels did you feel like, uh, in, in any given moment, this could be it? Uh, I, I might die today, or I don't know how this is going to play out?
1: Hmm. I've never gone and counted them, but there's quite a few. I mean, in Tikrit, I definitely felt that way. And actually, a few times when I was in Iraq, I felt like that. Like in, in Tikrit, I'd been hitchhiking north, and then um, this guy picked me up who was a real fan of Saddam Hussein. Uh-huh. He was like, oh, Saddam Hussein's so great, and then he pulled off into Tikrit. And I was thinking, oh, no, I didn't, wasn't expecting to go to Tikrit because um, I was surviving by mostly not speaking English uh-huh. and trying to look like a foreigner. But anyway, since he pulled off there, we had to sit at a table at this outdoor chicken and rice restaurant and we're eating and he's talking to me in English. So I got to talk back in English and I could see all of Saddam's tribesmen giving me the evil eye because their, their uh, local boy who done well, their local, I mean, it was actually rich, original orcharder and gangster kind of, but he'd been captured by the Americans not long before that. And so they were giving me the evil eye and I was wondering, are they going to come over and chop off my head? But, you know, it turned out a few minutes past, they didn't do it. And I thought, okay, I guess they don't care. But I was a little bit worried there for a while. And some of the roads in Afghanistan, I mean, the really rough roads, and some of them were like the locals were telling me there's a 30% chance of being killed to take this road. Yeah. I Only, only two times I took such a road. And there were some of them they, they said as high as 80%, and I never took one of those.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And then in, um, I guess in Mogadishu, it seemed a bit dodgy. I mean, there, it was a trench warfare right near the hotel, and there was like tank shells whistling overhead. But it, it, I don't think it was exceptionally dangerous.
0: What about the moments of awe for you when you just are almost overcome with, with what you're seeing uh, because it's so beautiful or, or it's uh, particularly hilarious or, or touching or um, it just kind of you're at a loss for words?
1: Yeah, was, there's a lot of moments like that. But the thing is, there, I feel that emotion so many thousands of times. Mm-hmm. And for the oddest things, like, like once in the Solomon Islands, I was near to this area where you could go and try to pick those um, giant eggs that, that get buried in the volcanically heated sand. A particular kind of bird berries in there, and that, that kind of incubates it. But on the way there, I was in a dugout canoe, and I could see all these dolphins coming and spinning out of the water, and it's just like this amazing blue, and then hundreds of dolphins all around spinning out of the water. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, an amazing place. Like, you feel almost like you're in a King Kong movie or something, <laughs> or, even, or even another one, like just from a, a very typical place. Like, I was in uh, Brisbane, and I was just walking along the the shore, and there was a rusted, um, rusted railing there, and the sea was kind of uh, washing nearby. And I noticed something in the water that I thought, oh, it's kind of a leaf, but it seemed like it was, it was moving around oddly. And I thought, oh, it's a bird that's fallen in and I can't get out. And it's just kind of there trying to keep its head above the waves. So I sort of leaned off this old, this old um, rusty railing with a stick. And eventually I managed to sort of snag it and pull it closer to the shore. And then when I got it out, it was kind of stunned or not even moving, but I just like left it out in the sun and left. But, you know, I have a little memory like that stays with me. Right. But these kind of things happen all the time.
0: Uh-huh. And...
1: Uh, they just build up like you get hundreds of thousands or millions of little memories like that.
0: Uh, here's another question uh, off topic, but but of, of the different meals that you've tried over the years, different regional foods, what are the ones that you think back and, and thought, uh, I, I never have to eat that again <laughs> or the ones that you, oh, like, or really the ones bad, you bad. said so no good. to? Well,
1: this, the Southern African stuff is really bad because, you know, like good food comes from civilization. Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of the African places, because of tsetse fly and malaria and stuff like that, they never could develop a civilization. Mm. So so in certain parts, they'll just have like um, sorghum mush and like goat grizzle, that Uh kind of thing. Yeah, really, really underdeveloped. Uh, But, you know, you'll find really good cuisine usually where there's been an empire for many thousands of years. Mm. So, you know, probably the last one I discovered was the Georgian one. Because their civilization goes back to the time of, like, Jason and the Argonauts. I mean, it was ancient Colchis in that area. Uh-huh. So, you know, they have extremely developed cuisine that's not like anyone else. But, um, yeah, a lot of good ones, though, like um, I think Malaysia is quite good. Uh-huh. Some parts of the Indian ones are good. I mean, it, like, I've had I've had so much bad food as well, though. But, <laughs> yeah. but Africa is probably tops for bad food right
0: now. How does your relationship with time change during your travels? I mean, uh, as simple things like keeping track of the day of the week, uh, those sorts of things sort of almost lose significance, right? As as you're not looking forward to the weekend, for instance, how did you find yourself uh,
1: thinking about time and, and the passage of time? Well, I find weekends mean almost nothing to me. Right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think, like, you know, the way London taxi drivers, they say, and I think they've even proven that a certain part of their brain really increases in size when they learn all the streets of London. Hmm. Well, I think that part of my brain that deals with that kind of organization, you know, must have like only ten neurons in it or something. And I, I really don't uh, worry too much about that. I mean, it, <laughs> my usual day is I just sleep in a way where I, I get just enough sleep, and I get up usually feeling very healthy, and then just think, oh, what what fun will it be today? Uh-huh. And then just go and, and, and get up to adventures or hang out with friends, and I'm joking and talking, and almost every day passes like that. And it's almost like if I'm not seeing, like, a World Heritage site at least once a week, you know, it's almost, like, <laughs> feels like something's wrong. So from my point of view, even though I'm living in very poor conditions, like third world conditions, I actually feel that my quality of living is, is extraordinarily high. And when I come back to a place like Canada, I really feel it dip. So so here I'm quite comfortable. The temperature is perfect. The food is abundant, all these things. But it seems to me almost like the people are kind of lonely. Like, everyone just kind of sticks to themselves and they just know just a few friends. Mm-hmm. And, and, um it's It's far different than what I'm used to. I'm used to meeting people who can even become like an extremely close friend. But all the time I meet people such as this, right. And you know because you're because you're off having adventures together, you can get to know someone really quickly. It's just like you have this luxury of time. I think Canadians are kind of missing that hmm.
0: yeah. What do you think that travel taught you about Canada and and the and the the country that you left behind if if you think about uh, you know leaving and and coming back with the things that you see differently?
1: Well, I, I notice an odd thing now. So there's like a political polarization happening in Canada now, mm-hmm. and you meet people who are either like they're they're very right wing or they're very left wing, and it seems like the the one thinks the other is is quite evil. And I find this very strange because um, from traveling around, I've become more and more centrist. So I really think that it's not it's not a bad thing that people compromise and just f- find some way to sort of take the middle path. Mm-hmm. It's actually the the way that's best for human progress, to my view. And I think I've become very, um, in a way, tolerant. Not the way the left speaks about tolerance, which I don't really find to be very tolerant at all. It's like a different kind of tolerance right. where you learn to actually tolerate people that have extremely different views than your own. So, you know, I, I've kind of, in a way, been forced. But in a way, I'm, I was quite willing to allow my brain to change in a way that I can try to understand and mostly sit and listen and try to learn different points of view. Because when you're traveling, you're meeting it, like someone who's kind of a progressive that you might meet. Would be the equivalent of like a Harper supporter or a Trump supporter. And the person who's not, like, person who's more a centrist or the person who's more like a traditionalist, they would be something you wouldn't even see in North America at all. Mm-hmm. Like, like, people that you sit down with, like, their views toward what's the proper place for women, you know, or, or what about, uh, you know, should countries attack their neighbors, or should there be, like, should thieves get their hands chopped off? Like, like uh, their, their views are far, far, far to the right of uh, Canadians. Right. And I try to listen and I try to understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm not I don't think those things myself, but I'm trying not to be to be uh, viewing everyone as an enemy. And people people are like that. I mean, people are very traditional, especially socially conservative around the world. And I think I've tried over the years to understand their point of view because mm-hmm. they're, they're coming from a different position. Right. Like even, for instance, I was talking to one guy in Algeria and he's trying to explain to me how there has to be Sharia law of chopping off the hands of thieves. I'm like, "Hmm, okay, but I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen to him. Mm -hmm. And he was explaining how, like, he's pointing to various old men and they still go out and they go to some farm on a a somewhat distant oasis. Like, let's say it's like an hour and a half walk to the place where they're doing their farming, Well, you get a lot of bandits coming out of the desert and they're even uh, shooting up and killing people around there as well. So you have to be kind of careful of them. And if they were not so scared about being a thief and didn't think they would lose their hands then they'd be very inclined to come in there and steal the irrigation pump that the old man might be leaving behind where he's trying to farm in this oasis. And if that's the case, then he would have to be taking that pump back into town and then bringing it out again every time he had to use it. And then that being the case, it would mean that as an old man, he can't be a farmer anymore Uh because now he'd need his strong sons who were uh, able to carry that out and bring it back. So it would actually make him incapable of living the life that for him is the life he wants to live. Like he wants to be a farmer. He wants to farm his oasis. That's the way he views like being useful in old age. Mm-hmm. But if you allow thieving to be out of control, then that doesn't work. So, it's, you know, I learned that just by trying to um, listen to someone as they described to me why there has to be such an extreme punishment for thievery of chopping off hands. Mm-hmm. And I can understand his point of view. And I'm not saying that Canadians should have that point of view. I'm just saying that now I can understand his point of view from listening to him.
0: Right. Here's another totally different thing. How did you deal with the, the reactions from whether it was family, friends, acquaintances, people that you met uh, as your travel stretched from, from months into years and, and you broke away from what uh, has become a conventional norm that, that people uh, expect of each other almost?
1: Well, I think for me, luckily I had pretty good cover because I've got a younger brother and an older brother uh-huh. and both of them are married with two kids each. So, you know, as, as like a middle son, you know, I had a lot of leeway that way. But I, I think there was an expectation probably that I'd do something at least halfway normal. Mm-hmm. And I never did. And I think enough time has passed now that no one expects it of me. So I guess I've, I've dodged that that uh, obligation.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess I don't know when the cutoff point happens. Uh, how many years have to pass before people just uh, just say, oh, that's just Mike. And that's, you know, that's, that's just how yeah Yeah, yeah. I think,
1: I think that's already kind of settled in. Like that's what they expect. Because you know, if, if I'm if I'm typically gone for a year of traveling, and then maybe I come back for Christmas or something, right. you know, after, after you know several decades of that, eventually it settles into people's minds that that's probably what I'm going to continue to be up to.
0: What what is uh, what's your relationship with travel like at this point? Uh, how strong is your appetite for seeing more, or how do you go about uh, your travel now?
1: Well, now I'm really enjoying it because I'm so good at it now. Like it's just like uh, you know any kind of weird skill. If you practice it enough, you can get really good at it. Mm-hmm. And what I'm, I'm taking advantage of now is a, the same thing. Like when I was um, y- year two thousand New Year's, I was the only one on a plane, like sort of um, on a seven forty seven, just lounging across all the seats, getting mm-hmm. service whenever I wanted because there was no one else to have to serve. Because everyone everyone was scared that the plane would drop out of the sky because of the Y two K bug. Right. And I knew that that was going to that was bogus, right? So I was taking advantage of the practically free flight and being able to sleep all the way out to Asia. And it's the same thing now where there's certain countries where. People think that because of, of conditions, they're undoable. So all the other tourists are shunning it. And as a result, it's a really good deal if you can get in there and uh, see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So like um, I mentioned Ukraine, I was there for a couple months just over the, the past uh, summer. And it's a really good place to visit because everyone's afraid of the war and they're staying away. Which means that, first of all, it acts is a bit more of a filter. So you're meeting slightly more interesting people because these people are brave enough that they would go there despite that. And also you're um, taking advantage of a lowered currency. In fact, it's the process by which the currency doesn't get as lowered is that certain people are not scared away. Mm-hmm. If everyone was, it would be lowering even further. So, you know, you can you can live very cheap there, very well for very cheap. So I guess I, I, at the moment I'm taking advantage of deals.
0: Yeah. You make another great point in your book about uh, just the accumulative value of the sorts of things that are out there to see right now and how there's no guarantee that those same sorts of things are going to be accessible in the years to come. You know, things, things like Machu Picchu with the demand that's there constantly. And, and,
1: uh, uh, yeah, it's going to be unvisitable. I, I think yeah. the way it can go, you can see but the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. what happened to that. So if, if back in the 50s or 60s, you could go there and you're like, oh, I want to raft down the Grand Canyon. Seems like a natural thing to do. Well, you, you probably at that time you could just go and do it. But now if you want to do the same thing, I think they it's like an $18,000 fee or you've got to wait four or five years. It could be even six or seven years. I was hearing various numbers that were very high. So you can see that the the whole world now is becoming exceedingly rich. So you know all of China is going to be considered a, a rich developed country soon. It's almost on the brink of it. So it's going to flip over and be considered rich quite soon. Uh-huh. And you can see more and more Chinese people traveling. The Indians are just starting to travel. The Malaysians already are. So you can see more and more people are getting the money to go out and see these things. And I think a lot of these world heritage sites or the things that are especially spectacular, things like Petra or Borobudur, or, there's so many of them, right? Those those mm-hmm. um, in Cambodia, like Angkor Wat and stuff. Eventually, they'll be almost unvisitable because there's so many people swarming in there. And a lot of Europe is like that now. Like if you try going to uh, Rome and seeing the Colosseum, yeah. I'm not sure if you tried to do that, but you might have noticed how expensive it is.
0: Yeah, well, and 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 especially the mass of people. I remember that. Uh, that my memories of Rome are, are just uh, of how many people were there. I mean, relative to other cities, maybe not as much, but but yeah, the crowds, absolutely. You try to go to the
1: Vatican Museum.
0: Yeah, well, that was yeah. The Vatican. I I, I went into the Colosseum. I I did not bother going into uh, well the Vatican. Yes, but but not to the the Sistine Chapel. The 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 line for that was was far too long. Uh, yeah, so I managed t- to get in that, yeah. but that
1: was a, a while ago. But my uh, brother was trying just over the summer, and um, yeah. Yeah, said it was it was really tough, and they really have to push you through quickly. So eventually, that's what all the major sites on Earth are going to be like. That, yeah. And what what'll happen is if you're a backpacker, you'll probably be having to avoid most of those sites, and you'll be going to the more minor sites or just uh, extremely small sites.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So, yes, yeah, so if it's a perfect time now to go out and sort of carpet bag these travel experiences at a, a fraction of what's their true value. Uh,
0: if, you, if you're gonna give a pitch to somebody uh, a sales pitch to somebody who's uh, who's working in, in that job where they have you know two weeks and they're they're trying to think why, why would I get out and go anywhere I've got everything I, I want here or I just can't think about why I should ever leave uh, how do you convince them to get out and, and go and, and see some of the world
1: well first of all I might not try to convince them because <laughs> yeah. I tend to sort of talk to them a little bit and I'd see are they someone who's who's very interested in the world mm-hmm. because some people aren't and that's fair enough mm-hmm. But if they are very interested in the world, then I I might make an effort to show what is possible to do and the the kind of adventures and stories you can become a part of if you travel. Right. But if they're not, I'd probably try to steer them towards some place that's just kind of fun. Because there's some areas we can just go and you can um, party. (laughs) So, you know, know, for a lot of people, perhaps if they're just taking a short trip off, a short break from work, maybe it's better they go to a place where they can just get drunk and go to the disco or whatever. Yeah. That's fine too. So I'd, I'd be trying to sort of tailor my advice to this sort of person I think there are. But you do meet people who are kind of intellectually unsatisfied. Maybe their minds are working a little bit more than the average person. And if that's the case, they really should go out and see some of these different parts around the world. Right. And there's also the,
0: the people that will say, yeah, I, know, I, I would love to do that kind of trip or I would love to go there. Uh, but but uh, I think we as humans are very good at making excuses for why not, uh, and and you know some people there that may very be very well be the case that you know uh, that you can't afford to go there or or you have things that are keeping you from going. But but I think we are good at making excuses for why not to get out and and, and go experience new things, and maybe it's a hesitancy to to experience change and and to experience uncertainty. But, uh, but I don't mm-hmm. know what it is. It's
1: usually time that people can't afford these days. I mean, I even talk to some like safari operators in Africa and they say it's not the expense anymore. People hardly care what it costs is that they mm-hmm. can't afford it. Because, you know, even like wealthy people from North America used to go out sometimes and, and spend like four months on safari. Yeah. But now, you know, it, it can't be like that anymore. No, uh, everyone works all the time. Really, they work and they work and they work. I'm not sure what they have in mind. Like, like I meet sometimes people who are working quite a lot and doing extremely small amount of traveling But they claim to be really interested in it. And they're thinking, well, I'm going to travel after I retire. And I'm thinking, no, you're not actually. Because unless you develop that skill over time, you won't have it when you retire. Like let's say you hardly ever or never travel. By the time you're 65 or 68 or something, you're going to travel. You won't have the skill to travel. It'll be too bewildering. You'll end up probably going on a package tour. Right. So, you know, you've got to keep your skills up or develop those skills if you expect to be able to uh, make use of them later in life
0: what what else has, has travel taught you uh, about yourself and about the
1: world well it has taught me that that um, I was quite surprised at how uh, kind and humane people are even in the most violent warlike countries mm-hmm. because I, I always wondered when I was uh, younger I would think could you go to Sudan or would people just immediately shove a spear through you and kill you right and it turns out that people are just as kind and as generous there as they uh, they are in other places so I think that there's a commonality to humanity that makes travel possible and most uh, civilizations or tribal areas or whatever they have some kind of an attack social order with usually an idea that you shouldn't mistreat strangers so i think it's a wonderful thing about the human race spread around the whole planet that you're able to sort of drift around and just uh, try to go from friendly person to friendly person and just take a friendly look at the whole planet
0: uh-huh. well mike thanks so much for for sharing some of your, your time and your experiences
1: yeah, you're welcome it's been a lot of fun
0: That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Mike, his book is called The World's Most Travelled Man. I finished it by now and would recommend it. He writes well. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe. If you're on iTunes, you can leave a rating and a review. helps other people find the show. You can also help out by passing it along to someone else you think might enjoy the podcast. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.